Well, my headset. Thomas, you want to mute the... Oh, he's Somebody was using my headset, I can tell, and I think it was Pastor Bob last week when he preached. I feel like God, Goldilocks. Somebody was in my bed. <laughs> Doesn't fit quite right. Sorry, one second. All right. Slight adjustment. I think we're good to go. Okay. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 24 or the Holy Scriptures read, beginning in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar... He is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today and we just ask that you would be our teacher, that your spirit would illuminate our minds, that you would convict us of sin where we need to be convicted. Help us to see the blind spots in our life that are less than Christ-like. We are sinners, but in Christ we are made perfect in your eyes. But in the meantime, Lord, we chase after holiness and and perfection as we endeavor to kill our sin and live righteously. Not to gain righteousness, but because you've made us righteous. And so, Father, we come to a difficult text today. We ask that we would check our biases at the door, that we would approach this text with open eyes and open hearts and allow you to tell us what you've told us in this word, not to turn away from it, not to neglect it, not to harden our hearts, but to be open and receptive to the truth as you've given it to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. He's a man of great mystery a man of surprise. He's a man who is often quite difficult to surmise. Sometimes he hides high and sometimes he hides low and sometimes he hides behind others to keep his profile quite low. And so if you are to spot him, you will have to look well, carefully, meticulously, or he will evade you, I tell. But in order to spot him, you must know what to see. Red hat, blue pants, a cane for his knee. For without these in hand, you will not know where he be. So I ask you now, who is it we must see? I hear laughter, but no answers. Waldo. And at that, there are no more rhymes from me. Where's Waldo, or where's Wally, as the British say over the pond, is a children's puzzle book that challenges readers to do one thing which is namely, find Waldo, which isn't always a very easy thing to do because, as we just said, he's often quite difficult to spot. For example, technically, this is considered a fun game, I guess. Uh, But for me, it was always stressful and frustrating trying to find him on the pages. Sometimes one of my siblings would find him and they wouldn't tell me. I just had to keep looking and keep looking. I'm like, if they found him, I can find him. But it was stressful and frustrating, so how this is fun, I don't understand at all. But nevertheless, fun it was for some who enjoy the challenge of trying to find him. Now, we do have some preaching here to get to today, so I'll just show you where he is. So for all of you OCD people who are going to be focused on this until you know the answer, 
There you have it. All right. Who found him? Anyone? Jacob did. Good job, Jacob. You had a, you had a head start, though. With this in mind, I want to ask you a question. If the author of the book told you to find Waldo, but he didn't provide you with a picture or even a description of Waldo, could you find him? Not a chance. If you didn't know what he looked like with all those people, it's a shot in the dark. Sure, you might pick someone at random and you might even pick Waldo, but you really wouldn't know. Not unless the author was there to tell you whether you truly picked Waldo or not. And so if you're going to find him, you need to know what it is that you are looking for. And so, church, it is the case when it comes to spotting false teachers. Because we are all in a spiritual cosmic game of where's Waldo? In Matthew 23, that is exactly what Jesus is preparing us for. The game of, it's a very serious game, but of spotting false teachers. And so in Matthew chapter 23, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me there. But in this passage, Jesus is telling us exactly what we need to know in order to find Waldo or to find false teachers. The truth is, if we don't spot them, they will blend right in with everybody else and go unnoticed. And if that happens, make no mistake, it's going to cause us very serious problems, very serious problems. And so today we begin part three of our series on the quality of kingdom leaders. And this is a series where we are dealing with false teachers. And just a quick recap, since it's been a few weeks, but in verses one and two, we saw how false teachers are not genuine, they're not merciful, and they're not humble. That's how we can identify them. Those are some of the criteria we look for in order to tell if somebody's a false teacher, because they don't have a sign that says, hey, false teacher, come to my church. They don't. Then the following week, we saw Jesus explain to us the reason that we need to spot them. And the reason that we need to spot these false teachers, as we said a second ago, is because it's going to cause us problems. But how so? Well, this is how. They conceal the truth, they close the door of salvation, and they corrupt others. And as Jesus said, they make their disciples, their converts, more of a child of hell than even they are. And so this is no small matter at all. And so we must, despite what our culture and what our world tells us, learn to identify false teachers so that we can, as the New Testament commands us, to mark them and then warn others to avoid them. And I can tell you this, if you do this, if you are faithful to what Christ is calling us to do here, you will lose friends. You will make enemies. You will not make friends and influence people, as the book's title, the famous book's title goes. You will make enemies for certain. People will say you are judgmental. People will say that you are an angry, unloving person. In fact, they will probably even call you a self-righteous and, ironically and sadly, a hypocritical Pharisee, which we'll address a little bit in the weeks to come. But here's the thing, church. Where in the Bible does it tell us that being loving means being nice? Have you thought about that before? In our culture, we equate being loving with being nice. But where in the Bible does it suggest that those are synonymous? I'll tell you, I'll tell you where. Nowhere. Nowhere. And yet, much sadly, of evangelical Christianity has been deceived by our culture into believing that being loving means being nice. And if that's true, if you look at Matthew 23, Jesus isn't being very, very loving by our culture's definition of loving, is he? He's not being very nice to these false teachers at all. In fact, he was downright mean to them by our culture standard. For example, in verse 15, let's look at some of the things Jesus calls them. In verse 15, he calls them hypocrites, children of hell. He calls them blind guides four times in this passage. In verses 16, 19, 24, and 26. In verse 17, he calls them blind fools, which is basically the English equivalent for that in our culture would be calling them morons or idiots. That's what he's saying. In fact, do you realize that Jesus calls these false teachers hypocrites seven different times in this passage? And that's just in this passage alone. This, he, he's had other interactions with him throughout Matthew's gospel. If you've been here with us, you've seen that. In verse 25, he calls them dirty dishes. And if you've had dirty dishes sit on your counter for a while with water in them, you know how stinky and gross those things can get. That's, that's a dig, if anything. In verse 27, he goes even further and he calls them whitewashed tombs, which means inside they're full of decay and corruption. 
And like John the Baptist did in verse 23, he calls them serpents, a brood of murderous vipers whose destiny is hell. And yet, though Jesus wasn't being nice, he was absolutely being loving. For the king of love, who is Jesus Christ, is a God of love who loves people, even if that requires not being very nice. And so if we're going to be little Christ, as we talked about a few weeks ago, which that's what the term Christian means. It means to be a little Christ who imitates Christ, who reflects him in his personality and character, in his loves and hates. We are going to have to give up being nice so that we can be loving. Not so we can be a jerk for Jesus, but so that we can be loving and actually point people to the truth of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone. The truth is, as Jesus teaches us in this passage, God hates false teaching that leads people to hell. And so we must stand boldly against it. All right, that's a little bit of a longer recap than we normally do. But as I said, with Christmas and Pastor Bob filling in last week, I figured most of us could use an extended recap here. And I just want to Side note quickly here, if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you, if you missed it, to go back and listen to the sermon Pastor Bob preached from Psalm 100, because it was a wonderful passage and a wonderful sermon, which I trust will nourish your soul as it did for my own. So thank you, Pastor Bob, for filling in last week. Now, to our passage this morning, which is Jesus teaching us how to spot false teachers. He's teaching us how to spot false teachers, and we spot them in three ways, and here they are. To spot false teachers, we look for those who twist God's word, those who cherry-pick God's word, and finally, those who neglect the heart of God's word. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we don't put the text we're in up on the screen once we're into it, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 23, and we're going to look at 16 through 22. I want to read those again for us so they're fresh in our mind as we jump into this. Verse 16 says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, well, he is bound by his oath. Verse 19, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, And by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Yeah, sure, I'll do it. I know I didn't do it last time, but this time I promise I will. Okay, I know I didn't do it, and I know I promised to, but you didn't see this, but I actually had my fingers crossed behind my back, so I'm really not bound to what I said there. That's actually on you for not checking. But this time, so you know I'm serious, I will pinky promise. Oh, yeah, well, do you cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye, promise? Do you swear on a stack of Bibles you'll do it? That is precisely what these false teachers are doing in this passage. Anybody heard expressions like that? Of course. These are common things I grew up hearing as a kid. Uh, at school and things like that. But this is nothing but lying, as Jesus points out. In fact, these religious leaders who engaged in just that, they came up with an entire system that allowed them to twist God's word in a way that would allow them to get away with lying and not suffer public shame for doing so. See, if you outright lie to people on a regular basis as a religious leader, and you're just like, yeah, I lied, no big deal. Well, you're going to lose face with the public. You're not going to be favored. People are going to look down on you. So you have to find a way to twist God's word to make your sin actually look justifiable. And that's precisely what they're doing here. They came up with an entire system that allowed them to lie. See, in the Old Testament, the way vows worked is that vows were absolutely binding, which is why the Old Testament said, hey, if you're going to make a vow, you better be very slow to make one and very serious when you make one because there's no take backs on these things. You can't break them which was often quite inconvenient when you made a vow to do something that was no longer convenient to do. And so realizing this, in order to get out of said vow, the religious leaders came up with a ridiculous system that was basically everything we just talked about with the promises and the pinky promises. It's just as ridiculous. And the way they justified this was they said that any vow that was made upon something connected directly to God was binding. See, if it was close enough connected to the name of Yahweh, well, then you had to keep your promise. 
But if it was, you know, like one, like two or three steps removed from Yahweh, then, well, you know, there was some wiggle room there, right? Because it's not, I mean, you're not taking God's name in vain directly. It's, it's a little bit down the path, so, so you're okay. That's the way they thought about this. See, for example, if you swore by the gold in the temple, or by the temple itself, they would say, that's not close enough to God. It's his dwelling place, but there's, you know, you got to go to the inner holy of holies and stuff, so you're good. You can get out of that one. Swear by the gold in the temple. Okay, well, that one you have to hold to because gold is pure. It's directly more connected with God. If you swear by the gold in the temple, you have, you absolutely have to hold that one. Oh, you swore by the altar? Well, that's fine. You can get out of that one too. But if you swore by the gift upon the altar, well, then that one's binding. You don't get out of that one. That's the kind of stuff they were doing. And what does Jesus say about this? He says it's nonsense. He says it's ridiculous. And it's total nonsense because think about this. Everything that is made belongs to whom? God. This is his creation. This is his world. He owns all the cattle on a thousand hill. He owns the hills. Everything is his. So it doesn't matter what you swear upon, because even if you swear upon the dirt that is underneath the temple, that is God's, and it is therefore then directly related to God. And so therefore it is binding. Everything Jesus says belongs to the one who sits upon the throne of heaven. And what does the king of heaven demand? We saw this back in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't even need to swear. You should be so honest that when you tell someone, I will do X, that is an oath. That is binding. That's how honest the king of heaven demands us to be. And so then everything is directed to God. A God whom I remind you is not only omniscient, which means all-knowing, but he's a God who's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere, okay? And this doesn't mean that his elbow is in Breezy Point and his big toe is in Abu Dhabi. This is all of God in every space of creation at all times. That's what it means for God to be omnipresent or in all places at all times. And so if everything is created by this all-knowing, all-present God, and it is, then to say that you will do anything is an oath that is certainly binding. Now think about this. If I tell you that next week I'm going to do something for you, and it might be something as small as, you know, picking up your mail, shooting you a text, meeting you for coffee at a certain time, and I just don't do it, and it wasn't because I had a legitimate reason, like being hit by a bus or something, I'm straight up lying. That's what's happening here. What I'm doing, actually, is I'm standing before the God of the universe, as we just said, is all-knowing and all-present, And I'm saying something that is a bold-faced lie to his face and not falling through with it. This is how serious our words are. This is why Jesus says on the day of judgment, you are going to be judged not just for your words, but for every idle word. That's a very serious matter, isn't it? Absolutely it is. When we tell our employer that we will show up for work and then call in sick when we aren't sick, who are we lying to, church? God. When we borrow that money, and we promise to pay it back, and then we don't because it becomes inconvenient to pay it back, or we don't feel like working to make it back, or we want to buy something that we would rather spend it on, who are we being dishonest with? Well, obviously that person, but ultimately with God. We're lying to the God of the universe. And so as Jesus commands us, our yes must be yes, and our no must be no. And if you think about that, should that cause us to pause and hesitate maybe a little bit more before we agree to do something. Absolutely it should. It absolutely should. And yet, one of the major marks of false teachers, as Jesus teaches us here, is not only that they disobey God's word, which we all do in many ways, sadly, but they justify it. They twist God's word in a way that gives approval to their disobedience. And false teachers are experts at this. In fact, we could say that they have a PhD in the science of moral evasion. Well, what is that? The science of moral evasion is taking the clear and obvious meaning of God's word and twisting it in order to evade moral responsibility. And this happens about a billion different ways. We're all guilty of this. How many times are there pastors guilty of a moral failing? And the church does not go after it and practice Matthew 18 and church discipline. Instead, what do churches sadly do? They cover it up. They cover it up. Why? Because the pastor's too big to fail. 
you don't want to hurt the ministry here, do you? I mean, look at all the good things that are happening and being done through this pastor. You really don't want to shut that down. You don't want to, you'll be guilty, actually, for if you move forward with this accusation. Don't do that. Don't do that. What they're really saying when they do this is they're saying the ends justify the means. And let me ask you, let's do a little Christian ethics question here. Do the ends ever justify the means? No, never. They never justify the means. And to say that the ends justify the means is nothing but twisting scripture to justify moral irresponsibility. Church, this is why it is so vitally important to hold your leaders accountable to the qualifications that are commanded in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They're not suggestions. They're very serious commands for obvious imperfect sinners, so don't expect absolute perfection. Like Leaders are going to sin. But if they are not meeting if the qualifications as outlined there, if they're not living up to what is defined there, they are disqualified for ministry. And yet, sadly, how many, do, how many times do pastors get a pass because they're a nice guy? How many times do they get a pass because, oh, they're, they're such a good preacher? Oh, they teach so well. They got such cute kids. <laughs> how many times does that happen? Sadly, all the time. But here's the thing. Does any of that count for being qualified to teach? No, that's not. It does not count. You have to meet the qualifications as outlined in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And this is something we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come, as Lord willing, we ordain some new deacons in this church, which I would ask you right now, be praying about that. This is a very important and serious matter in the life of our church. The truth is kingdom leaders will stand upon the truth of God's word. True kingdom leaders who are faithful to Christ, they will stand upon the truth of God's word regardless of how popular or unpopular it is. It's really easy to preach against the sins that we all come in as, a, as Christians and we're like, yeah, that's bad. None of us do that. Let's kill that sin. It's easy to do that. But preach on some of the sins that are a little bit more personal to us. And that gets a little bit hot under the collar sometimes, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I'd be lying if I said it's not difficult. However, it is what kingdom leaders are called to do. Kingdom leaders will not justify sin in the life of the church, whether that's in themselves or in the congregation. As a church, we practice church membership, which is not a country club at all. Okay, It's not you get to show up and people spoon feed you whatever you want. It's you show up and you spoon feed everybody else. Okay? It's a covenant commitment where we say, I will hold you accountable to what the New Testament commands, and you will hold me as the pastor of this church, and Lord willing, down the road, more pastors and more elders. We will hold each other mutually accountable. That's what we're trying to do here. And that means that kingdom leaders will not only be held accountable, but they will also hold the congregation accountable, even if that means they lose a family or two, sadly, in the process. That's, that, that is something that commonly happens. You call out sin, and a lot of times sheep like to run. Or sometimes they're not sheep and they're goats, and their running shows that they were goats in the first place. As First John says, they went out from us, for they were not of us. For if they were of us, what would they have done? They would have remained with us. And so this is a very helpful way of not rip going trying to figure out who's a wheat and who's a tear, but the tear is showing us that they're tares. And that is vitally important to having a pure church that is faithful to what Christ commands us to do. However, hirelings will not do this. Instead, they don't do this because they want to grow their kingdom, not God's kingdom. They want to use the tools of this pagan world to grow the church like a corporation grows a business. And what's the metric for a successful corporation? Money. Numbers, right? How many customers do you have? How much money are you making? And that has invaded the evangelical church more than we even can possibly comprehend. Instead, kingdom leaders will preach hard passages no matter how unpopular they are. They will call out the church's pet sins, even if that's in people who are founding members of the church. They will hold to truth regardless of what's popular or grows the church numerically. And why? Because kingdom leaders are called to not build their kingdom. They're called to build Christ's kingdom. And they do that by being faithful to what Christ, the head of the church, has commanded. And so if we're going to build Christ's church, if we are going to do what he says, we cannot twist scripture. And yet false teachers do this 
all of the time. And this, the, the hard part about it is they do it in very subtle ways, right? The hard thing, I'm going to try to get this quote right. This is off my notes. The hard thing is not spotting lies, but spotting slight deviations from the truth. That's not a great quote of it, but you get the idea, right? It's not just spotting lies. It's spotting the slight deviations from the truth. That's the hard thing when it comes to this. And so if we're going to build our own kingdom or not build our own kingdom, we're going to have to avoid twisting scripture. And not only that, we're going to have to avoid cherry picking scripture as well, which leads us to our second point. To spot false teachers, we look for those who twist God's word. This happens in a million different ways. You can be thinking about this throughout the week to come. But secondly, we need to look for those who cherry pick God's word. Look at verses 23 and 24 again with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Then verse 24, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. One of the major ways that false teachers twist God's word is by cherry picking God's word. And by far, one of the biggest areas where this happens with this cherry picking of God's word happens in the realm of money. It has to do with our finances. See, what they will often do is they will talk about how if a Christian gives to God, which usually actually means giving to their ministry, right? They're not saying, hey, you should give to this missionary over here and this ministry. Over there. They want the money, right? So they equate giving to them as giving to God. And they say that if you do that, God will bless you tenfold and more. And the way they sell this is by cherry picking scripture. They take a lot of truth, okay? And they insert lie, which makes it poisonous which makes it false. For example, one of the passages they love to quote is Luke chapter six, verse 38, which says this, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. And then look at this, for the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Well, there you have it. When we pass that offering plate around here every Sunday, that's not a way of you giving. That's a way of you getting, right? You put a dollar in, you're getting 10 back from the Lord somehow. I saw a video Josh sent me last week of this guy who was explaining this. He's a prosperity false teacher. And he was saying, here's how this works. When you go to buy a tire, right? And you got God's blessing. Remember how he phrased it. It was weird. I'm not going to try to, but here's the concept. He was saying, you go to buy a tire and you've got God's blessing from giving your tithe. You're going to go to get that tire. And the guy who's putting it on your car, he's going to go up and grab a tire. And for some reason, the angel that's standing there is going to move him down the line from that tire that had a defect on it to the tire that doesn't have a defect on it. And that's God's way of blessing you because that tire is not going to blow out on you, potentially kill your family or make you have to buy new tires very soon right? This is the stuff that he's, he's spewing and people are gobbling this up. Like, oh great, here, take my money, sir. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Who needs a bank account with a good interest rate? Just put your money in God's bank, which is our church's offering plate, and you'll get back more than you can possibly even imagine. The interest rate is way better than a bank's. Give your tithe and God will bless you abundantly with more money than you can even count. And sadly, there are false teachers all around us today who are spreading this nonsense unlike ever before. Now, just a quick side note here. Does God at times bless us for being faithful? Yes. But does he bless us with straight up financial blessing? Every t- Is that the promise? No, right? Like a lot of our blessings are coming in the life to come. We're storing up treasure in heaven. We are gonna stand before the Bema seat and receive gifts and rewards for what we've done in the body. And that's not dollar bills. Dollar bills won't be around. America won't be around when this happens. Now, here's the thing. Let's talk about this Luke 6.38. I want to show you why they're liars, okay? In order to help us protect, be protected from falsehood. In verse 38, look what it says there. Give and it will be given to you. Well, they never pause and, and, and explain what the it is, right? And don't you think that's a pretty important question to address what the it is when it says give and it will be given to you? Very important, okay? Here's the thing. Thankfully, right before this verse, and this is why we have to not cherry pick things and look at it in context, it tells us what the it is. Shall we read it? I think we shall. Verse 37 and 38, let's read it in context. 
Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And that's the context, which goes on to explain that, which says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. You will will be put in your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The context here is not money. What is it? Forgiveness. That's the context of Luke chapter 6. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. All you have to do is read the verse right before it, and you'll easily understand that, hey, this doesn't have to do with money. You're a liar, teacher. I'm not listening to you anymore. They never read that verse before. And so these bright-eyed, smiling, white-teethened, teeth-whitened pastors will not tell you the verse before it because it's going to make it harder for them to build their kingdom. That's what they're after. They want to build their kingdom, not Christ's kingdom. And so they don't tell you that. And instead, they continue on twisting and cherry-picking God's word with a huge, winsome, nice smile on their face. As Shakespeare said in Hamlet, one may smile and smile, and yet still be the villain. (laughs) So true. False teachers don't come to us with a horn on their head and a pitchfork trying to, you know, I don't know why they do that anyways, but they don't don't have a, a label on them that says false teacher. They are masters of disguise. Satan himself presents himself as an angel of light, and no wonder then so do his false teachers, his prophets, his teachers that follow him. Being a nice person with a nice smile does not make you godlike. What makes you a godlike leader? Being godlike, which is being holy, which is being faithful to God's word and teaching it fully and not twisting it and not cherry picking it. In verse 23, the scribes and the Pharisees, they do just that. They cherry pick God's word by adhering to the tithe. But at the same time, while doing that, they're neglecting, Jesus says, the weightier matters of the law. See, in the Old Testament, the law commanded giving a tithe, which is just simply all that means is a tenth what it means. And they actually had about three different tithes, which comes out to somewhere between 18 to 20%-ish of their income was given in this tithe. All right. And, it, and in this tithe, it included a tithe on your crops. And in that 10th of your giving, it went towards the temple and the Levites, right? The tribe of the Le- tribe of Levi, they were the ones who were in charge of the whole temple system. They were the priests. It went towards them because they didn't have time to go farm the crops and do all the things they were supposed to do. So this was the way for the other tribes to take care of the one so that they could do the ministry of the temple. So it was God's way simply of taking care of the priests and the temple system. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they were following that tithe faithfully, no questions about it, but in an extremely meticulous way. See, it didn't say that you had to tithe your spices anywhere in the scripture, but that's, what they were, that's precisely what they were doing. Not only did they tithe their crops and their income, they were tithing the mint, the dill, and the cumin. If you, and if you cook it all, you know what I'm talking about. These are, these are spices, and they're pretty good spices. But they were taking these and counting them out and getting it just right, and then giving that as a tithe. And they were making a whole public show of this, which is boastful and prideful, which we'll get to next week. But that's exactly what they were doing. And yet, while they were faithful to follow this Old Testament law, they were guilty, Jesus says, of not following the weightier matters of the law, which included, ultimately, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Read Malachi, read Isaiah, read, read any basic book in the Old Testament about how much God cares about his people upholding justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, under the Old Testament law, they had what were called purity laws, all right? And under these purity laws, these included like things like what kind of fabric you could wear all the way to what kind of foods you could eat, okay? Which, this might shock you, but that meant no bacon and no sushi, which for me would be pretty tough because I love bacon and I really love my sushi. But that was the law. Nevertheless, and we don't have time to get into explaining why God made that a law for his people, but he had good reasons for it. But within these purity laws, they weren't allowed to eat gnats or camels. They were, they're clearly articulated in the Old Testament scripture. We don't have time to jump to it today, but you can look this up. It talks about how they weren't allowed to eat gnats or camels, and they were considered unclean. And to be frank, I don't know why you would even want to. I mean, maybe camel burger's good, but I've been biking and running and gnats fly in my mouth, and I know those are no good, Okay. But both, it, both of these were considered unclean. So the, the gnat, the camel, unclean. 
And so in Jesus' illustration, he's saying to them that they are such hypocrites that they go through this meticulous process to strain the gnat out of their wine. See, what would happen was they'd have their wine there and the gnats would come along sometimes and they'd get in the wine. And so they would strain it through some kind of cloth to get all those things out of there so they wouldn't accidentally swallow one and therefore become ceremonially unclean. But then what do they do, Jesus says? It's hyperbole, but he's saying it's like doing that to get the small unclean gnat out, but then you go ahead and swallow a camel. It's hilarious. It's ridiculous, right? And what's interesting enough is the word gnat and camel are almost the same exact word in Hebrew. So he's making like a little play of words here too, which is interesting, which we don't get in the English. But basically, Jesus is humorously pointing out their blatant hypocrisy. What Jesus is saying is that they majored on the minors and they minored on the majors. That's exactly what they were doing. And this is why Jesus calls them all the names he does, which includes blind guides, because they're getting that gnat out, but they can't even see the camel that they're swallowing. It's ridiculous. Now, let me ask you, this is an important question. Is Jesus telling them not to worry about the small laws and instead just worry about the big ones? Is he saying, just drink the unclean gnat, like no big deal. If you see a gnat in there, just, you know, whatever. And then just make sure to get rid of the unclean camels in your life. Is he saying that white lies aren't that big of a deal? That's really what I'm asking. Is that what he's saying here? Obviously not, right? Which is why in verse 23, look what Jesus says here. He says, these you should have done, what? Without neglecting the others. Do you see what Jesus is saying then? He's not rebuking them for tithing their spices. He's like, yeah, that's cool. That's good. That's good that you're after that. But you know what's not good? You're doing that in a legalistic way. And that's made evident by the fact that you're neglecting the heavier matters of the law, which is mercy, justice, faithfulness. And therefore you are hypocrites, you blind guides. That's what he's telling them. And it's ultimately because they've neglected the weightier matters of the law. And they do that, Why? because they have neglected the heart of God's word, which leads us to our final point. To spot false teachers, we must look for those who twist God's word, those who cherry pick God's word, and finally, those who neglect the heart behind God's word. In verse 23, Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. We're going to talk about tithe and money for a minute, huh? Let's do it. All right, here's my question. Does this mean giving one-tenth of your income is a binding law upon all New Testament Christians? Is that what Jesus is saying? Does that mean that the first thing you must do once your paycheck hits the bank is to take 10% of that money, write a check out to Eagles Nest Church or whatever church is your home church, and if you don't, to quote another commonly cited passage from Malachi 3, that you are robbing God's storehouse? Can I be direct and tell you the honest truth. I'm going to do it anyways. The answer is no. Now, let me, please allow me to clarify and explain why, all right? Christians are not bound by the Old Testament tithe, which is giving a tenth three times throughout the year, actually, which comes out to 18 to 20%. They're not bound to that, and I want to explain here why. When Jesus said this, what era were they in? The Old Testament era, pre-cross, Right? Was the church around at this time? No. Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. Okay? They're different things, and that's really what you have to understand in order to understand what I'm explaining here. You have to understand there's a difference in these dispensations, a difference between uh, what was happening in the Old Covenant and the New. So, this is the Old Testament era. And what was going on when Jesus said all this? Right down the road from him, not too far, what was there? Big building, what was it? The temple, the temp, is there a, t- is this, is this building here a temple? Nope. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit resides in you and me as a follower of Christ. There is no more temple system. And so at this time, the temple system was still in place. It hadn't been destroyed like it was eventually not long after this in 70 AD. And so all of the Old Testament laws were absolutely still binding at this time. Okay. However, Today, through Jesus, what did Jesus tell us back in his Sermon on the Mount that he came to do? He came to abolish the law? No, he came to fulfill it, to fill it full, okay? 
And so with that, in Christ and what he's done on the cross, he has ushered in the new covenant, which has which is fulfilled in him. He has fulfilled the law in full when Jesus paid it all upon the cross. All right, now we got to talk about the clarifications here because we don't want to confuse this. All right, preacher, so you're telling me that I can keep all my money and spend it however I want. Sweet. I love this church. <laughs> yes, you absolutely can. That is, if you want to be like the scribes and the Pharisees who neglected the heart of God's word, which was what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. When you think about that, doesn't that sound an awful lot like the first and second great commandment? that Jesus gave us, does to me. And what are those? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then what? The second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these, all of the law and the prophets can be fulfilled, can be understood. These are the explanation of them all. Now, I'm sure for some of you, this very well may be the first time you've heard a preacher uh, stand in the pulpit and tell you you're not bound by a 10% tithe. And if you're honest, this probably seems like a relief because it means you have more discretionary spending to use, or it might mean that you just have less guilt for not having tithe at this point. But let me ask you a question. If you are holding on to your money, once you find out what I've just told you, there is no tithe that's binding. You're not bound to have to give 10% three times a year. Once I tell you that that's no longer a binding thing for New Testament Christians, and so if you go on then to hold on to your money with two fists, slightly tensed, slightly clenched, there we go, slightly clenched, here's my question. How can you honestly say you're loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself? The answer is you can't. You absolutely can't. Yes, you are not bound to the lighter matters of the law like tithing, Right? So a Christian is not bound to tithe. They get to tithe, right? Do you see the difference here? It's a totally different thing. All right, let me explain this, what I mean here. All right, New, Test New Testament Christians, they are bound by the weightier matters of the law. Those are absolutely bound, and I can, we don't have time to look at them, but there's numerous New Testament passages that show us that, hey, in the cross, justice, mercy, and faithfulness don't go away. Those are also binding for Christians in the New Covenant era. We don't get to throw those to the side. They're absolutely binding, Okay. So with that said, do you not see that in Christ, yes, we are no longer bound to the tithe, but that's only because in Christ, what are we bound to instead? Not the law, but the law of love. We're not bound to law, but we're bound to love. And let me ask you, when it comes to love, is that a 10% tithe that we give? No, it's a 100% tithe that all of us owe to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I'll venture to say here, that also means loving God with all of our money, not just 10%. See, here's, here's the danger of a, of a New Testament Christian writing their check for 10%, throwing it in the offering and think they've obeyed God and they're, and they're right with God, is they can do that begrudgingly. They can do that frustrated annoyed that they have to do it. And does that please God? No, it doesn't. Absolutely it doesn't. The truth is we don't have to tithe. We get to give God whatever we want and we should if we understand what we're given in Christ, delight in giving. It shouldn't be an annoying, frustrating thing. This is why the apostle Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Yes, New Testament Christians don't have to give a tenth of their income, but the truth is they can give that and way more. You don't have to stop at 10. You can, you can give 40 if you have the money and want to. And you can experience the joy and the blessings of, as Scripture said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see what we're talking about here? We're not talking about a weighty, heavy law that's trying to crush your joy and make you feel awful. We're talking about the path to joy, which involves giving up the idols of this world and longing to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and with all of our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. So the question isn't, how much do I have to give? 
but how much can I give? Because that's going to bring joy to your life, unspeakable joy. And why? Because in Christ, I can finally, and only in Christ, can I finally begin to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength, and make no question about it, if I am doing that, if the Spirit of Christ resides in me, it will manifest itself in loving others, not just with words, not just with my time, but also with my money, with my wallet. I can't remember who said it, but he said, you want to see somebody's loves? Let me see their bank account. Let me see the checks they write. And there's some truth to that. We spend money on the things that we care for. We absolutely do. Love is the law that all Christians are now bound to, the law of love. I want to show us a, a beautiful example from this or of this in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. Verse 2, they are being tested by many troubles. They're going through persecution, right? And they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed how? In rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. In fact, look at verse four. They begged us again and again for what? The privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to. Do you see that? They didn't give because Paul came in there and just laid it on thick with a heavy guilt trip being like, you know, you, you gotta start doing. No, that's not what happened. He didn't guilt trip them into giving up the new jet ski or the new car that they wanted. They actually begged Paul for the privilege of sharing in giving towards these hurting Christians, towards this ministry need. And why would they do that? It's because they understood exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse nine, which is this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you see, church, what we've been given? Do you see everything that we have in Christ Jesus? You and I, as the sons and daughters of the King in Christ, we have, as Ephesians 1 tells us, all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. They are ours. They are assuredly coming to us. If I'm honest, as your pastor, I absolutely am tempted not to teach you about the freedom you have in Christ when it comes to the tithe. I'm neglected to make like comments, to not say much about it because I'm worried that some of y'all might find out about the freedom you have and then our income for the church is going to drop and drop and drop and we're not going to be able to fund the ministries. And so I too, if I'm honest, am tempted to twist God's word, to cherry pick God's word, and all for the sake of accomplishing truly good things. We have a building we desperately need to build. I like having a nice income just like everybody else does. But if I did this, I would not only be guilty of building my own kingdom instead of Christ, but I would be missing an enormous opportunity to direct my heart and your heart towards the heart of God that is found in his word. And I desperately want that for all of us. Clarification. It's not wrong to tithe. And even if you disagree with me and you believe the tithe is mandated today, that doesn't mean you're a false teacher, okay? So I don't want to say that. Good men do differ on this. In fact, I will say I personally think there's a lot of wisdom in making the tithe a starting point for Christian giving, but only if it's done in joy, only if it's done in joy. And you don't have to stop there. If God blesses you with more finance and more giving, you can go beyond that. You're free to do that in the Lord. Either way, hear me when I say this, and this is the, port, the most important part of all this. It doesn't matter how much we give if we don't give God our hearts. It doesn't matter at all. And the Pharisees, the scribes, they didn't give God their hearts, did they? No. They were self-righteous hypocrites who loved themselves and twisted the word of God in order to bolster their own desires. Let me show you this from 1 Corinthians 13. You hear this at weddings. It's a great passage. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Apart from Christ, every single one of us were spiritually poor, and in fact, we were spiritually bankrupt before God. We were under the weight of debt that we could never pay. And yet in Christ Jesus, our debt has been paid. For as the song goes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And so may we as a church stand together boldly upon the truth of God's word and the gospel of his one and only son, in a dark day surrounded by so many enemies of the gospel, and may we do so for God's glory and the good of his saints. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this text. Father, I pray that you would not allow Satan, the confuser, to spread confusion through what was preached today, but that we would hear your word clearly as it says, not as a means to justify idolatry, materialism, or anything that brings shame to your glorious name. But Father, I just ask that your people would see the enormous, the enormous privileges we've been given in Jesus Christ, that we can take our dollars that we have, that, that all come from you, and we can convert those into a currency that is stored up in heaven that one day you will give to us. And so Father, help us to utilize the time we have now. Help us not to live for the things of this world, Help us not to be lovers of money, lovers of self, but lovers of you. So help us to take our time, our money, and our possessions and use them for your glory and the good of your saints. Father, I pray for the one here today who's been living under the guilt of their sin, thinking that their performance, whether that's moral performance, whether that's financial performance through giving, whether that be a tithe or whatever, I pray, Father, that they would turn from the law which crushes they would turn to Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly for us and who allows us to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And then, Lord, we pray that out of that love, that that would manifest in love for others. And help us to mimic Christ as we do so. Help us to be little Christ, Christians who boldly declare the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Help us to speak the truth, but to speak so in love. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.